Oh, good morning, uh, everybody. Let me start with uh, an apology. Uh, term has already started at Oak Hill, which meant I was only able to be here for the first paper yesterday. Um, uh, so I was sorry to miss uh, the rest of the papers. Uh, sorry, too, to, be, to find myself uh, fulfilling the stereotype of the New Testament scholar, jumping in more than halfway through, largely ignorant of what came before. Um, bear with me. Uh, my brief is The Justified Abraham Uh, And uh, to begin with, what I want to do is uh, just make a comment or two about justification in the 20th century, uh, some big uh, moves that have happened uh, to that doctrine. Uh, That will just establish some boundaries for us about what we can accomplish in this time uh, and at least highlight for you what else is out there beyond what we can talk about from Romans chapter 4. Doing that will bring us to the new perspective, which was part of my brief Uh, As it happens, this is quite a good time to be looking in on new perspective debates, uh, in part because there have been some recent developments, for better and for worse, uh, in part because we get to enjoy the spectacle of scholars changing their minds in public, and that's always enjoyable. Finally, uh, we'll come to the text of Romans chapter 4 itself and consider the role of Abraham in Paul's argument and some of its implications for us. Uh, So as we begin, uh, let's think for a moment about justification in the 21st century. Uh, Essentially, two big things have happened. Uh, The first is that it has retained its traditional meaning, but moved to the edge of Paul's thought. Uh, This is what's happened in the writings of Albert Schweitzer and in Ed Sanders. On this view, the, the traditional view of justification by faith has got it basically right. Uh, that uh, men and women are justified by faith instead of uh, uh, the things that they do, the works of the law. But the traditional understanding has made a reformed mountain out of a Pauline molehill. According to Schweitzer, the traditional view is there in Paul, but he's not really sure what to do with it and doesn't think it adds up to very much. In particular, he thinks uh, a view of justification by faith makes it impossible to find any ethical imperatives And for that reason, it can't be central to Paul. It must be something peripheral. Uh, For Sanders, Paul comes up with his doctrine of justification really as a makeshift argument against uh, Judaism. He's become convinced for other reasons that Jesus is the answer. And now he finds himself scratching around for a reason that Judaism isn't. Uh, The result is a bit of a self-contradictory mess. And it requires a bit of a caricature of the Judaism Paul actually knew. But it doesn't really matter for Sanders. Paul knows that the answer is Jesus. His true theological centre lies elsewhere. And so justification by faith um, can be uh, put to the edge and made an expedient, really, as Paul tries to justify Jesus as the answer to his fellow Jews. So the views of of Schweitzer and Sanders, uh, well, we've got Schweitzer's famous image, uh, true for both him and Sanders. The doctrine of the righteousness by faith is therefore a subsidiary crater which is formed within the rim of the main crater, the mystical doctrine of redemption through the being in Christ. That's a view that they both share. At the heart of Paul's theology is not justification by faith, traditionally understood, but participation in Christ, what Sanders calls participatory eschatology. Now, as it happens, that view is enjoying a bit of a revival of late Uh, with a depressing lack of imagination. It's going by the name of the post-New Perspective perspective. Uh, It's found a champion in one Douglas Campbell, uh, who recently contributed one of the chapters to Zondervan's book, Four Views of the Apostle Paul, that came out recently. Uh, For him, essentially the same argument as Schweitzer and Sanders. 
what he adds is a new acronym to describe Paul's theological centre, PPME, Pneumatologically Participatory Martyrological Eschatology. But basically the same thing that Sanders and Schweitzer are arguing for, not justification by faith traditionally understood, but participation in Christ. Now, we all, I guess, want to say at that point, that's a false dichotomy. We don't have to choose between justification by faith in Christ and union with him and participating with him. But this is a view that goes back to Schweitzer. And uh, here is Schweitzer's dictum uh, that's really dominated New Testament scholarship ever since. Progress always consists in taking one or other of two alternatives in abandoning the attempt to combine them. And that's what we find played out often in justification debates in the 20th century. Justification by faith played off against participation or participatory eschatology, terms like that. Uh, If you want a brief introduction to that view, uh, Stephen Westerholm's excellent little book on justification that's just come out, Justification Reconsidered, uh, it's a little primer on uh, debates on Paul and justification. He covers essentially all of the main figures involved with the new perspective, Krista Stendhal, Sanders, Dunn and Wright. Uh, The final chapter picks up uh, Douglas Campbell's work and is a useful introduction to that. Uh, If you've got appetite for a little bit more, uh, Doug Campbell has written a, a thousand-page book, The Deliverance of God, An Assault on Justification Theory, as he calls it. Uh, you'll find reviews online. If you've got access to a uh, journal for the study of the New Testament, Barry Matlock has a terrific review article entitled Zeal for Paul, but not according to knowledge. <laughs> it's one of those titles you wish you were clever enough to think up for yourself. So that's one experience of Paul's doctrine of justification in the last century or so, that it's retained its traditional meaning, but it's been pushed right to the edge of Paul's thought. For that reason, uh, Romans 4 holds very little interest for those guys, uh, or at least it interests them in ways that we can't go into this morning. Uh, The second experience, though, uh, of Paul's doctrine of justification is that it's kept its place at the heart of Paul's theology, but it's been redefined to at least some extent. Uh, so as you read the work, for example, of someone like Ernst Kesemann, you find uh, that the language of the righteousness of God and justification by faith is littered everywhere. But it becomes a far bigger term than we would normally recognise, a catch-all term really for anything to do with the Christian life. Uh, justification and sanctification all wrapped up in one. Uh, more recently, of course, we have uh, the new perspective, James Dunn and Tom Wright, uh, And to some extent there we find justification certainly central to Paul, but redefined um, compared to the traditional view. So the old perspective, uh, to their mind, has misunderstood Paul's doctrine of justification. When it's properly understood, it is central to Paul. (coughs) Wrongly, we've assumed that Paul is addressing 16th century questions. How can we find mercy from an angry God? Uh, When actually justification is the answer to a more specific first century set of questions. How are the people of God marked out? And so on what terms are Gentiles to be admitted? And of course, for Dunn and Wright and others, it follows that those questions were dear to the heart and central to the thinking of the man who knew himself to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, as you'll be aware, there's been all sorts of discussion over uh, whether um, uh, whether the new perspective brings any clarity or obscurity to Paul's true meaning of justification and how comfortably those readings sit within Protestant orthodoxy. We, of course, aren't going to settle those questions this morning. What we can do, though, is gain a sense of the the lay of the land. 
And uh, as it happens, Romans 4 currently offers one of the best views of it, as we'll see. Uh, I'm taking a long run up to Romans 4, you've noticed. A few more comments on the new perspective uh, as we get there. Uh, First of all, Schweitzer casts a shadow over this debate as well. You remember his dictum, progress always consists in taking one or other of two alternatives in abandoning the attempt to combine them. Uh, In this case, old perspective versus new perspective, individual salvation or Jew and Gentile relations. Is Romans chapter 4 about how people are saved or how Gentiles are included? Or at least that was the tone of the new perspective as it was launched. Secondly, though, more recently, there have been some more attempts to bring the two together, or at least to turn down the rhetorical volume somewhat. On the old perspective side, there's now widespread appreciation for the first century context in which, Paul, in which Paul's doctrine of justification arose. Well, of course, we should note that had we um, uh, turned to the reformers this morning, we'd find uh, a, a, a decent sensitivity to those issues uh, therein. Nevertheless, it is a welcome thing that the, the caricatures of Judaism some of the dehistoricized versions of the new perspective that were prevalent in the early 20th century have been put away. When you read uh, the likes of Bultmann and Kazeman, you realise there was something to react to um, and there was a legitimate concern expressed by the new perspective. Uh, on the new perspective side too, there is a growing sense of the old perspective lion lying down with the new perspective lamb, most notably in the case of James Dunn. Uh, Although he rejects the claim that he's modified his position considerably, he confesses to setting up his arguments in ways that were, quote, misleading and unnecessarily provocative at the birth of the new perspective. Dunn now insists his intent was not to nullify the reformed doctrine of justification, but rather to establish it on a firmer and broader basis. Writing just last year, he insisted that if the new perspective sparks off a renewed attempt to do justice to the whole Paul, it will have been a worthwhile hiccup in the ongoing process of receiving what Paul still has to say about the gospel for today. That's quite striking. Uh, What was called a Copernican revolution is now a worthwhile hiccup. Tom Wright, too, seems ready to beat his sword into a plowshare in the spirit of Isaiah chapter 2. In his recent published epic, two-volume Paul and the Faithfulness of God, he believes that if by his approach we manage to get beyond the false standoff between salvation history and apocalyptic and also between participatory and juristic, we should also manage, with this analysis, to transcend the low-grade either-or that's been taking place between old and new perspectives. I have no interest in perpetuating such a squabble. In an article published in 2012, he characterised the new perspective as a reformed protest against a Lutheran theology, and suggested that had reformed scholars like Herman Ridderbos been listened to, the protest might never have been necessary. That's a direct quote. On the other hand, though, at least in the case of Wright, things are a bit more complicated. A more recent article, still published just last year, is written more in the spirit of Joel chapter 3, with plowshares beaten back into swords as the knives come out for the old perspective. Tom writes that his argument strikes exactly against the position which has become one of the last strongholds of the old perspective on Paul. He goes on to say that his reading means that this last refuge of the old perspective is dismantled, leaving the occupants nowhere to hide. Well, what, you might be wondering, is that last refuge of the old perspective? It's Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. That is significant for a few reasons. Uh, First, not before time, it brings us to Abraham. Uh, Second, 
this passage has always been talked about as one of the, the weaknesses of the New Perspectives reading of Paul. Uh, it's the Achilles heel, the smoking gun. Pick your metaphor. So a fresh attempt to read that passage within a New Perspective framework is worth uh, checking out. Thirdly, this is a passage that Tom Wright has changed his mind on. And the result is two quite different readings of Romans chapter 4. One that you can find in his Romans commentary in the New Interpreter's Bible series. And one that you can find in Paul in the Faithfulness of God. And the article from last year he wrote called Paul and the Patriarch. Two quite different readings of Romans chapter 4. Both are right. At least one of them is wrong. And either way, it's worth having a sense. Thank you of where he now stands. Lastly, it's just worth noticing that the spirit of Schweitzer has descended once more. Uh, As we just heard, the old perspective is not to be accommodated, but to be dismantled. Or to give one example from Paul and the faithfulness of God, we learn that Romans 4 is through and through covenantal, hardly at all soteriological. So, uh, we're faced again with some of those uh, uh, options uh, Uh, And uh, we now come to think about what Romans 4 is truly about, whether contemporary readings are justified by Abraham, at least as Paul presents him in Romans chapter 4. So I'm going to read uh, Romans chapter 4. I'm then going to outline uh, Tom Wright's new reading of uh, Romans chapter 4 and then offer some critique, some comment and uh, some reflection on how I think Romans chapter 4 fits into Paul's letter. And what it means for us. So let's hear God's word. Romans uh, chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might might be credited to them. He is then also father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, 
Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. That is why it is credited to him as righteousness. The word it was credited to him, the words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who, who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Amen. Now, um, let me try to outline for you um, Tom Wright's new reading of Romans 4. Uh, and then, as I say, we'll move to um, something more constructive, um, as I argue, um, uh, a different way that Romans chapter 4 will fit into the argument of Romans. Uh, so first of all, Tom Wright's view. Uh, I'm aware that some of us will be quite used to Tom Wright's vocabulary, his way of expressing himself, uh, and uh, others less so. Um, on the screen, there'll be an outline of, of his view, as clear as I can make it. Uh, we can obviously pick it up again in questions if um, you're struggling to follow him or me or both. Uh, First of all, the, the big idea really for, for Wright is that Romans uh, is an account of God's covenant faithfulness. That's how he glosses God's righteousness. Uh, it's an account of God's covenant faithfulness to the promise to establish a worldwide family. The covenant in view is almost always the, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, and uh, so uh, when he says that, he means that God has kept his promise through Abraham to deal with the problem of sin and to create a single worldwide family. Frequently, when we're talking about Abraham, we're talking about um, uh, the way that Tom Wright thinks the covenant with Abraham is there to deal with the problem of sin, to create a worldwide family. Uh, in Romans chapter 2, um, we see the way that uh, that promise to Abraham becomes Israel's calling, that they are in some sense to be the place where the sin of the world is dealt with and where um, the one family gathers. Romans chapter 2, then, in, um, in Tom Wright's mind, shows Israel's failure to live out that calling, to be the place where the sin of the world is dealt with and to be the light to the nations. But then in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, uh, where Israel has failed uh, in that calling to be the place where the world's sin was dealt with, Jesus has faithfully fulfilled that calling, showing God's covenant faithfulness to establish that worldwide family to deal with sin. Then in Romans uh, chapter 3, 27 to 31, the new family is marked out by faith because God is one and his family must be one. Far from overthrowing the Torah, this is what the Torah intended all along. Uh, that's 3 verse 31. But then we come to the question of, of chapter 4. If the Torah is upheld, does it also define the boundaries of God's people? And uh, Romans chapter 4 in Tom Wright's mind is there to show that the covenant always was about the inclusion of Gentiles. And so God's covenant faithfulness to the covenant to Abraham will involve the inclusion of Gentiles. The promise to Abraham shows that the law can't uh, define the boundaries of God's people because that would limit it to those who are of the law. Um, but the promise of an innumerable offspring um, shows that uh, Torah won't be um, what marks out God's people. Um, and what Tom Wright thinks is happening in Romans 4 is that uh, the focus is, is on what Abraham believed about God's promises. So when he believed the promise, he reasoned that God was planning to include not only his physical descendants, but also the Gentiles. And it's in this sense 
that Abraham believes in the God who justifies the ungodly. Tom Wright thinks that's a reference to the Gentiles. Abraham believes in the God who is going to include the Gentiles. Uh, He finds another reference to that thought in in chapter 4, verse 17, um, where God is the God who uh, gives life to the dead and speaks of the things that are not as if they were. Um, He thinks that's a reference to the physical offspring, to Isaac, life from the dead, um, but also the things that are not as if they're existing as a reference to the Gentiles. So crucially, Abraham is not, he thinks in Romans chapter 4, one of the ungodly who are justified by faith. Rather, God justifies Abraham, and remember in in Tom Wright's thinking, um, to be justified, here at least, is to have a covenant, uh, to be brought into the covenant, or to have a covenant made with you. Um, God justifies Abraham because he believes God will justify the Gentiles. At this point, it's just worth noticing a nice irony here. Um, One of the things that Tom Wright has talked about for a long time as a critique of the old perspective is that it gives the impression that you're justified by believing in justification by faith. Um, Obviously, you struggle to find someone who actually argues that, but that's been a a critique he's had of the old perspective for a while. Here, though, is Abraham, in his view, who's justified for believing in somebody else's justification, the justification of the Gentiles. David performs a similar role as Abraham in Romans chapter 4, not as an example of someone justified by faith, but someone who speaks of the blessing to be extended to the Gentiles. So Paul, this is a quote from uh, the article, um, Paul and the Patriarch, Paul makes the psalm point to God's determination to justify the ungodly, to bring pagans into his family. David here is not any more than Abraham, spoken of himself as a sinner, uh, though no doubt Paul could have said that too but rather is invoked as one who gives testimony to the blessing of forgiveness on anyone who has no works, no outward sign of belonging to God's people. What then about Romans chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, where um, Abraham's justification and the terms of it seems to be under discussion? Well, the answer is, and there goes the Greek font, um, the the key word is mythos, uh, the wage or reward. Um, so when uh, in Romans um, chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 there's reference to the one who receives his reward um, Tom Wright thinks really the key to the whole chapter is to see that that word also appears in Genesis chapter 15 verse 1 after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision fear not Abram I am your shield your reward shall be very great and in Genesis 15 as the dialogue uh, goes on the reward is very clearly the offspring that God is promising to Abraham so Paul's point in Romans 4 to a four to five is simply that God's promise of innumerable, innumerable offspring to Abraham is freely made, and so Abraham cannot boast of, the, of being the solution to the world's problems on his own. What we're talking about is the way that the promise came to Abraham, not the way that Abraham uh, was justified, um, but the kind of the nature of, of the, the way the covenant was established. Yes, right admits, Paul does then develop a very brief bookkeeping metaphor in verse four. But the reason for the metaphor itself, working for a reward which is then owed, emerges not from an underlying implicit Second Temple Jewish soteriology of doing good works to earn God's favour, but from Genesis 15 itself, which is innocent of all such notions, and which speaks instead, as as Paul does, of covenant and family. Verse 4 embroiders this with a particular colour, but this embroidery carries no weight in the passage as a whole. So summing up his his understanding of Romans um, chapter 4, Romans 4 as a whole is about the bringing of Gentiles into the one family, a theme repeated again and again from different angles. 
Justification would seem then to be Paul's way of denoting either the bringing into the family of those outside or the recognition or demarcation of newcomers as being within that family. The contribution then of Romans chapter 4 to the argument of Romans is to say uh, that that is what Abraham always understood the covenant to be about, that it was going to extend to the Gentiles rather than Abraham's own justification being a model in some sense for um, our own. So, you can see um, uh, that this comes into the second category that that we outlined at the start. Justification redefined Paul's way of denoting either the bringing into the family of those outside or the recognition or demarcation of newcomers as being within that family, but still central to Paul. Now, some response um, to that As we said a minute ago, there's a danger of accepting um, these uh, false antitheses, the antithetical premises of his argument. We don't actually have to choose between Romans chapter 4 being about soteriology or being about the makeup of God's people. In a sense, Tom Wright doesn't want us to make that choice either. It's one of the things that makes him rather hard to pin down. Um, He says it's hardly at all about soteriology and not about the covenant, But remember, his view of the covenant is that the covenant was there to deal with the sin of the world in some way. So he protests that there is a role for soteriology within his view, but it comes under the rubric of covenant. Uh, No doubt doubt we'd like to hear some more specifics on in what sense Israel does deal with, um, was uh, set up to deal with the sin of the world and how that plays out. Um, But one of the things we need to be careful to do is not always accept um, those uh, polarisations as he presents them when actually you find something slightly more subtle going on in his work that said the illuminating question remains why justification is not by works but by faith for right the answer is still that if justification were by works then the Gentiles would be left outside if by works of Torah it would mean quote the end of the promise the end of the multi-ethnic seed the end of the worldwide inheritance What's at stake in the question of justification by works or by faith is still the extent of God's people, whether it will be truly multi-ethnic and worldwide. But of course there's more at stake than the extent of God's people. If justification were not by faith, there would be no people of God at all. That becomes clear when we attend to a number of other connections between this chapter, the surrounding argument in Romans and some intertextual connections elsewhere. As we do this, we can actually lean quite heavily on Tom Wright's Romans commentary, which is alert to many more of those connections. It seems to me that what's happened in his most recent view is he's latched on to what he thinks is that allusion to Abraham's inheritance, the mythos, and uh, all the other um, connections that he used to build an argument on have fallen away. Uh, Many of those connections revolve around that phrase concerning the justification of the ungodly. Uh, First of all, as uh, many commentators note, Uh, God here is said to do what he forbids to be done in the Old Testament. So Isaiah chapter 5 verse 23 pronounces a woe on those uh, who justify the ungodly. Exactly the same terminology as uh, Romans chapter 4. In Proverbs 17.15, he who judges the unrighteous to be righteous is an abomination to the Lord. In Exodus 23.7, the Lord himself swears that he will not justify the ungodly. In light of of that clear resonance, it seems very far-fetched to say that the justification of the ungodly in Romans 4 is a reference to the inclusion of the Gentiles. The clear context of the phrase uh, is of the forensic acquittal of the guilty. 
To justify the ungodly in Isaiah and Proverbs and Exodus is not to extend the boundaries of the covenant community, but to allow an injustice to occur within it. So the Old Testament background of that phrase, uh, Tom Wright once rightly argued, is helpful in understanding Romans chapter 4. Then there's the context in, in Romans. As Romans 1 to 3 is developed, human unrighteousness is universal, placing all in the category of the ungodly. The wrath of God, 118, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Jew and Gentile, then, alike are unrighteous, 310. Jew and Gentile alike are ungodly. 118, the wrath of God is poured out against all the ungodliness of men, um, an ungodliness that uh, the Jews can claim no um, separation from in chapter 2. And of course, there's that reference in 5.6, the next reference to the ungodly, where it is all of us for whom Christ died, died while we were ungodly. Ungodly there can't be a reference to the Gentiles, but rather to all of us uh, apart from Christ. And Jew and Gentile, of course, alike uh, find themselves under God's wrath. 1.18 and 5.9, the condition under which we were. So at this point in the argument of Romans, we find ourselves at that um, classic impasse. Either the wicked will be justified, uh, no one else will be, for all are are wicked, and yet God has sworn not to justify the wicked. And here, of course, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 come into play. God, putting forth Jesus as the propitiation for our sins, is able to be both just and the one who justifies the unrighteous. And that is why, as Paul has been at pains to emphasise, justification is not by works. Not just so that it's more inclusive, not because believing is an easier contribution for us to make than obeying, not even because God always acts freely and without owing anyone anything, so it must be on those terms. But because, chapter 3, verse 20, if it is by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. As we heard yesterday, God's solution to the fall and those genealogies of death comes and it must come in the category of gift where before there is only death and barrenness God promises to bring life the argument so far of Romans has been um, that no flesh will be justified by works only by faith from that perspective uh, Abraham starts to emerge in Romans chapter 4 as a paradigm for how justification works for everyone Uh, First of all, you, we can see this in the, in the way that uh, Romans 3.20 and then 3.27-31 and 4.1-17 um, are addressing similar questions, taking up the argument of uh, Romans 1-3. So in 3.20, we're told every mouth will be stopped and silenced. In 3.19, um, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. In 3.27-31, boasting is excluded because a person is justified by faith, not works of the law. The result is that circumcised and uncircumcised are united together under the one God through faith, together under wrath and sin, uh, unable by works to be justified, but justified together through faith. And then 4, 1 to 17 maps Abraham onto that, confirming, um, as I guess we would all argue, um, that Paul's argument um, is backed up by the case of Abraham, that he himself has no right to boast because he himself was justified by faith and not works. And so circumcised and uncircumcised are united together as children of Abraham through faith. Um, 
With that in mind, Paul wanting to map Abraham onto his argument in Romans 4, um, we can think a little bit more about why it was important for him to do so. Um, For some, uh, Abraham is simply an example that he could have picked uh, at random. He could have picked any of the heroes of faith from Hebrews 11 and worked this out. Um, Of course, as almost everyone recognises now, um, rightly, Abraham is central Something that just about everyone was agreed on. Jesus and the Pharisees, Paul and the Judaizers. Everyone agrees we need to follow in the footsteps of Abraham. The question always at issue is what that looks like. Among the Jews, there was a long-standing tradition of Abraham obeying the law in advance and so being justified. Or being faithful in offering Isaac and so being justified. So some examples um, on the screen. Um, first from, uh, from Sirach, Abraham was a great father of many nations and no one was found like him in glory who kept the law of the Most High and entered into covenant with him and established the covenant in his flesh and was found faithful in testing. Or from uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Abraham did not walk in evil and he was accounted a friend of God because he kept the commandments of God and did not choose his own will. From Maccabees, was not Abraham found faithful in temptation and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Abraham's obedience to the law and faithfulness in temptation are the grounds there for his justification. Uh, and uh, so then we find in, a- in uh, Romans 4, Abraham um, uh, with a very different role, justified without works in 4.1-8, before he was circumcised in 4.9-12, and not through the law, 4.13-15. We must have missed how striking the second of those is, before he was circumcised. Not only is Abraham flying in the face of those Jewish traditions, uh, by characterising him as ungodly, but particularly as an uncircumcised pagan. As Tom Wright rightly says in his Romans commentary, this is the beginning of a daring theme, that Abraham is actually more like believing Gentiles than he is like believing Jews. He isn't simply justified apart from circumcision, but while in uncircumcision. And through this chapter, Paul um, walks this very careful balance of wanting to argue certainly that for the unity of God's people we are all Abraham's children but there's just this nudge of, of a sense of the priority of Gentiles so uh, have a look at verses uh, 11 to 12 um, there we have Paul talking about uh, uh, in what sense people prove to be um, uh, children of, of Abraham and who comes first Uh, So then he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He's the father there first of the Gentiles and then of the Jews. Uh, If Paul's gospel then is first for the Jew and also for the Gentile, there's a sense in which in Romans 4 Paul argues that Abraham is father to the Gentile first and also to the Jew. There's a hint of that too in the way that Abraham's faith is described as a reversal of the Gentile idolatry in chapter 1. This is another insight from uh, Tom Wright's earlier work on Romans, uh, building on on an article by Eddie Adams. Um, So thinking back to um, Romans chapter 1, let's look at the right-hand column first. Uh, So there humanity knows God's eternal power but rejects the creator refusing to glorify him or give him thanks, thinking themselves wise. And the result is that they turn away from natural and fruitful relationships 
resulting in dishonour and death. And then think about how Abraham's faith is characterised in Romans chapter 4. That he recognises God's creative power and gives glory to God. Has no confidence in himself. With the result that his and Sarah's bodies produce life and are fruitful. What we have here is a, is a kind of restored humanity. Uh, and um, Abraham uh, as a reversal of that declension into idolatry and death from Romans chapter 1. So, Romans chapter 4 then, not about the extension of blessing to Gentiles, but building on the argument of Romans 1 to 3, showing that Abraham's justification fits with the way that Paul has argued we can all be justified. The final section of the chapter, verses 18 to 25, confirm this for us. Abraham is being lined up as the pattern for us all to follow and find assurance in. Verse 23, it's written that it was counted to him as righteousness, not for his sake alone, but for ours who share his faith. For those, verse 12, who walk in the footsteps of his faith. And in those final few verses of the chapter, Paul brings Abraham's faith and our own as close together as he can. Abraham, faced with a hopeless situation, looks away from himself in faith to God who justifies the ungodly, who gives life to the dead. Just as we believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. So Abraham, um, uh, a model, a paradigm for us of our own um, faith um, that justifies. I wonder as well whether in Romans chapter 4 he doesn't continue to be our model in some sense. One of the, the striking things in Romans 6 is the way that the language of dead bodies reappears. Abraham, you remember, was faced with a body as good as dead. In 6.12, Paul describes our mortal bodies, whose passions we're not to obey. In 8.23, we await the redemption of those bodies. There is a sense then in which we, like Abraham, still are faced with a body as good as dead and look away from ourselves to God to bring life where there is death. Some concluding reflections then. I have three. First of all, um, progress often lies in rejecting Schweitzer's premise. Um, Throughout, I've described the the kind of false antitheses that get set up. um, And we need to tread carefully, as I've been arguing. In the case of someone like Tom Wright, there are times when he wants to hold things together. And there are times when he's determined to put them asunder. Because of the ways he uses terms like justification and soteriology, we also find places where he seems to be setting them up in absolute opposition, when he's actually only rejecting, as we might, a sub-biblical version of them. There are places where he affirms truths and their cohesion, but they're not the reformed version of those truths that we might recognise. We need to tread very carefully to try and work out what each term is meaning in each uh, case, and to be aware of, yes, the ways in which he... um, uh, in places, seems to force things apart to try and just work out exactly why, why he's doing that um, and then um, judge um, how successfully he does hold things together um, using terms in their, with their right definitions. Um, the, the frequent um, uh, defence from his part is that people haven't understood him properly and people haven't been understanding him properly for a very long time. Um, as, as we've seen, I... It seems to be something of a feature of his writing that these things just live in tension. Um, He has no desire to perpetuate the old old perspective, new perspective squabble, and yet he wants to dismantle the old perspective. Um, Justification is, um, in some places, clearly forensic, um, always covenantal. 
Abraham's justification is to have a, to have a covenant made with him. Um, for us, it is to be included within the covenant. Um, justification is sometimes merely declarative. At other times, um, it is um, something that actually is a, is a transfer category. Simon Gathercole's um, review of the recent book that's available on the Reformation 21 website, again, just expresses some confusion still about how these things work out. Um, uh, the fault, I think, is um, not um, entirely in us. Uh, in the case of Romans 4, I think we can gain some clarity by distinguishing the meaning of justification from its implications. For Paul, justification concerns that failure of all people to do what is right, leaving them ungodly and under God's wrath. As Stephen Westholm points out in that book I recommended, this is not to read 16th century questions back into the first century, but it simply reflects the question that Paul's preaching was supposed to evoke. He spoke of the need to turn from idols and to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven, who saves us from the wrath to come. When you hear Paul preaching, the question that's supposed to be at the front of your mind is how can I find that God to be merciful? Crucially, there is an individualistic element to this. And this, I think, is one of the greatest casualties in Wright's new reading of Romans chapter 4. Abraham and David express the view and encourage us to believe that God justifies people over there. There's no real sense that Abraham and David continue to testify to God's justifying grace that they themselves experienced. Abraham simply believes that God will justify the Gentiles over there, as it were. David is not speaking from his own deep sense of blessedness, but describing what God will do for others. Well, if that is is how we're to understand justification in Paul, uh, its meaning, the way in which those who are unrighteous, who have not done what is right, who find themselves under wrath, are acquitted through Christ. Then we should also, in closing, just note the use that Paul puts the doctrine to in his letters. There are ditches on both sides of this road. On the one side is the weakness of the new perspective. They've rightly highlighted that Paul develops the doctrine of justification in situations where the inclusion of the Gentiles was in dispute, or rather the terms of their inclusion, or where church unity was a concern. The mistake that they make is to assume that justification is therefore an ecclesiological doctrine, missing the fact that Paul in Galatians and Romans settles ecclesiological disputes by taking his congregations back to first principles, to soteriological basics. The danger on the other side, though, is, is perhaps one we're more prone to, and that's to rightly to hold on to justification as a soteriological essential, but we fail to put it to use in all the ways that Paul does in his letters. As I read Paul's letter to Rome, written with one eye on divisions within the church, with another eye on seeing Rome becoming a supporting church for his mission to Spain, he puts the doctrine of justification to ecclesiological and missiological use. That, I think, is part of the thrust of Paul's argument. If we are all now together children of Abraham, walking in his footsteps of faith, if we were once all under sin and are all now justified freely by his grace, if we are justified by this sort of God, demonstrating this sort of power in raising his son from the dead and us with him, then do we not find ourselves addressed with that sort of message, bound more closely together, less prone to division, and more keen to support the furtherance of that gospel. Hard then to resist the call of Romans chapter 10. 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Knowing that justification ourselves, knowing our place now in God's people, um, knowing now the need for the world to call on the name of the Lord, that they too might be justified. Um, Let's commit ourselves to the Lord. So I pray. Father God, we thank you for that remarkable picture of Abraham, just as we once were, without works, ungodly, under your condemnation. And yet wonderfully, you have shown us grace that while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners, while we were still your enemies, you sent your son that he might die for us and that in him we might be justified simply by faith in him. Father, we thank you that um, you worked that in us, that we might look away from ourselves to you, to your creative power. Thank you for the great example that Abraham is to us in that. Father, we pray that we would go on looking to you um, to work uh, your power in us. Father, we want to pray that we take to heart not only the, the wonderful truth of justification for ourselves and our standing before you, but also its implications for us that we stand together as those who once were all under wrath and condemnation and now all stand together justified equally and freely by your grace. Father, we want to pray that um, that wonderful message would uh, bind us together and send us out, um, that all who um, hear of the Lord Jesus might call on him and be saved. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.